Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the podcast hosted by the bloggers of FT Alphaville. I'm Cardiff Garcia, a New York-based correspondent for Alphaville, and I'm joined today in Geneva by Izzy Kaminska. Hey, Izzy, what's up? Hi, Cardiff. I'm good, thanks. Awesome. Our guest today is Manmohan Singh. He's an economist with the IMF who's done a lot of interesting research lately on the role of collateral in financial markets, and that's also going to be the subject of today's podcast. Manmohan, how are you? Very good. Thank you. So listen, this is something that you've been studying over the last few years, the importance, the role of collateral in financial markets and the reason it matters. And you've also been pointing out how it's been somewhat ignored by other parts of, uh, of economic theory, economic research. So my first question is just very broadly to ask you to define collateral and why it matters in financial markets. To be more specific, collateral, which I discussed, is called pledge collateral, which pretty much lubricates the markets or the financial markets in the same way as money. And I'll give you some examples about the type of collateral which moves. So, for example, the typical way are large banks, and there are about 10 to 15 large banks active in the collateral space, they will receive collateral from, say, an OTC derivative position when they're in the money. They may get it due to reverse repo. They may get it due to a SEC borrowing or maybe a prime brokerage client who needs leverage monies and and he'll parcel on some portfolio of security. These are the typical avenues which come into large banks and are in the footnotes of the balance sheet coined pledge collateral, which they receive, which can be onward reused. So the point I'm trying to make is, it's not all collateral which I focus on. There's a lot of other collateral which which is there. For example, there's a tri-party repo. I don't talk about it because that has to do with a primary dealer club. So that's general collateral which moves within. However, this bilateral pledge collateral market is something which you don't have data on. And people haven't got a handle on this simply because even academic research, they're used to having databases. For this work, you really need to understand the microstructure of how central collateral desks work at the major 10 to 15 banks. So can and, you explain that a little bit, though? Can you I mean talk about the kinds of, of financial assets that get pledged as collateral in these markets you're talking about and why, how it works exactly? Break that down for us a little bit. Okay. So let's say a large bank, let's say Goldman or Barclays, their balance sheets will not reflect the amount of pledge collateral which comes in. Now, you see, pledge collateral which comes in, and has rights to move from, say, a Barclays to a Goldman to a hedge fund to, say, a money market fund, it needs something called title transfer, which basically says that this is, that I have the rights to move this collateral just like money. If the pledge collateral doesn't have title transfer or rehypothecable rights, then you can't move it. In general, the four areas I just defined, the OTC derivative market, the reverse repo market, 
the security lending borrowing market and the prime brokerage agreements with hedge fund clients. These are the four basic avenues from where pledge collateral comes in. Most of it doesn't go to the balance sheet. It depends on how the bank has structured its balance sheet. For example, Lehman Brothers, the last balance sheet, the last annual report, they showed assets and liabilities of $700 billion each. However, pledge collateral received by Lehman, which it could onward use in its own name or repledge onwards, was $800 billion. So clearly, the funding model, the days before Lehman, had a very strong bias towards off-balance sheet financing. Significant bias. If you look at the numbers in those days, around the time when Lehman collapsed, you had about $10 trillion worth of pledge collateral moving between the 10 to 12 large banks. That's changed a lot, partly because some banks have disappeared. Lehman's not there. Bear Stearns is not there. But, you know, some others have, have come into the market. You still have 10 to 15 large banks in this market, but the amount of pledge collateral they are receiving in the footnotes, again, of the balance sheet is not 10, is more like 6. So the market has really, I mean, this is a, this is a big number. And the reason I say this is a big number is because the closest comparison is money. If you look at the M2 in the U.S. around the time of Lehman, it was about six, seven, eight trillion. M2 is a very broad measure of money, okay, very broad. Now, the amount of M2 for U.K. and the eurozone combined was also around 10, 11 trillion. So, in those days around Lehman, you had about 20 trillion of broad money or M2 from the U.S., U.K. and the eurozone. And you had 10 trillion of pledge collateral. If you think about it, and clearly not all the money make it to the banks, you know, the money is used by almost everybody else, but even allowing for the fact that all the money is at the disposal of the bank, you had 20 trillion of, of M2 and 10 trillion of pledge collateral. So one third of the funding was coming from pledge collateral. Now you have a lot of central banks pushing out base money. Base money is, is important, they do it QE, now, that has an impact on, uh, on, on, on the M1, M2. But at the end of the day, now the amount of pledge collateral is $6 trillion, And with all the QE going on, you have a lot more money uh, relative to collateral. I mean, the latest numbers I have is we are, back to, we are back to overall lubrication. That's money and collateral of about 30. But the composition of collateral is only one-fifth of $6 trillion. So there's a dramatic shift. The, the latest numbers as of end 2012 is also showing that this market is not rebounding. We are still at $6 trillion, But I'd like to emphasize where, what do you mean by the pledge collateral market, which was $10 trillion in 2007 and about $6 trillion in the last two, three years. This is compromise of hedge funds putting up collateral and non-hedge funds, which includes the official sector, sovereign wealth funds, pension insurers, also putting up collateral for reuse. So these two sources have between them roughly average about 1.5, 1.6 trillion apiece. So, you know, the raw sources of collateral coming in in 2007 was like 3 trillion. Okay. Now, how does 3 trillion become 10 trillion, which was in the footnotes of the large banks? Well, the collateral goes from one bank to the other until the demand meets the supply. So, for example, if UBS picks up a hedge fund collateral in Hong Kong, and somehow through Citibank, there's demand via a Chilean pension fund for that security for three months in Santiago. You may have UBS booking it directly to the UK sub. And then from the UK, they liaise with Citibank and Santander. 
and then the Chilean pension fund has access to it for, let's say, three months. Uh, in this process, you have two or three players meeting the demand and supply between Hong Kong and Santiago. That movement or reuse, or you can call it velocity, that's the churning of collateral which happens in the market thanks to the large banks who make the demand-supply meet. This collateral is cross-border, is pledgeable with title transfer. Hence, you know, you can move it like money. So when UBS books it, UBS is free to move it on anywhere in the world. This is very different than some other collateral markets which you hear about, like Triparty, I talked about it, which only moves within a small club. And is, it doesn't have unlimited rehypothecable wheels. So, but are you in, saying then that the, the velocity has gone down in, um, since the crisis and that's why we've seen a reduction? Yes. So when I mentioned that the pledge collateral market has gone down from 10 trillion to now 6 trillion, yes, the velocity is down from about 3. So the example I gave was the raw sources of collateral from hedge funds and non-hedge funds was about 3 trillion and you and well about 3.3 trillion and and you have overall market of 10 trillion so that gives you 10 over 3.3 roughly a velocity of 3 now you have 6 trillion of the overall market and the raw collateral coming in especially this year the last year was about well in this case it was still about 3 trillion so you have 6 trillion in the pledged collateral footnotes you have 3 trillion coming in from the two sources so 6 over 3 the velocity is down to 2 now, in between, why, why do you think that is? What is making the velocity go down? Well, uh, so far, it's not regulation because most of the regulation will take bite in the next few years. If you look at Basel III, you look at the CCP, you look at uh, uh, Dodd Frank and MAs, much of the regulations have a time. They have a timeline going on until 2018, 2019. But QE has happened, and QE is happening. So when you have the Fed taking away 85 billion. Uh, of good collateral every month, and this is uh, just part of QE3. There's been almost a 2.5, 2.6 trillion of good collateral sitting in the Fed. This collateral doesn't move. When you take away good collateral from financial markets, velocity slows down because you need good collateral to move the not-so-good collateral. Along with the Fed, Bank of England has done some uh, QE, although they haven't done any since the end of last year. SNB is, is, is another avenue which absorbs good collateral, but not because of QE, but because they have a peg. So the Swiss national balance sheet has a liability now, which de facto is in euros. If you have a credible peg, your liability is in euros. So all the flows coming in Swiss franc are basically euros. If you want to keep the peg of 1.2 credible and you don't believe in a derivative market for whatever reason, I mean, they may, uh, uh, I mean, who knows, but let's take the assumption they may believe that CCP may not be able to, able to deliver if, if something goes wrong. So they will hedge the old-fashioned way. Their assets are all in euros. So all the short-denominated euro assets, which could be in uh, German bonds, French bonds, Dutch bonds, Danish bonds, they are sitting at the Swiss National Bank. So from ECB's angle, who is trying very hard to take in not so good collateral for money. If you look at the LTROs, LTROs did not suck up good collateral. LTROs gave you money for whatever collateral you turned in. But the good collateral is not taken by ECB, but has moved to SNB for their own peg issue, to keep the peg robust and not take a hedge to derivative. So you have large repositories of good collateral not moving. When good collateral is siloed, it reduces overall collateral velocity because you need good collateral to lubricate markets. Bad collateral needs help. 
It needs good collateral to move. There's a bit of like the um, the Gresham's law here. You're seeing, you know, the bad the bad stuff drives out the good. Yes, yes. But I mean, the good stuff has been driven off for QE reasons out here. It is still being driven off. Even when you talk about tapering, 85 billion could come down to 75, 65. Who knows what? It could go up to 95 billion a month. But good collateral is still being uh, absorbed by the Fed. Can I, can I cut you guys um, off for a minute? Because correctly that um, central banks should make more effort to loan out the securities that they have, and this might be one way to solve the problem. And if I if I understand correctly, SOMA, the um, the, the New York Fed uh, securities open market uh, sort of desk, does offer uh, its securities for loan and has been lending more and more of them. So is that helping? I would say, take the example of Reserve Bank of Australia. For me, that's a better example simply because it has actually said, we want to prop up collateral velocity. We understand regs are coming. Now, now that's a different part of the world. They don't have any QE issues, but they are cognizant that you will need more higher quality liquid assets. That's how they call good collateral. More HQLA in the, in the next two, three years. So anybody can come with any security and they'll get, uh, uh, high-quality liquid assets, which will typically be an, uh, something from the Reserve Bank of Australia balance sheet. Uh, it will be marked to market. There's a 15 basis point fee for coming into the door and then walking out with a double A or triple A or whatever you deem fit is your need to place at a CCP or for regulatory reason. That is a clear-cut example of a bank saying we, we do hold good assets. We like to use them. There is a demand for it. And this is a way to keep up the collateral velocity. I, I don't want to comment on uh, the Fed SOMA. All I can say is that relative to the amount of collateral being sucked into uh, the Fed because of the QE3, you have almost two and a half and maybe it will be three trillion by the end of the year of good collateral, which is being taken away from the market. Let me, let me go back to first principles here for a second, Monmon, because I think this analysis has been really fascinating. But I think a lot of people will, will understand what you mean when you talk about the velocity of collateral, and I think a lot of people will understand the analogy between collateral and its reuse, its rehypothecation, and the traditional notion of the money multiplier. But I think we're, what stumps a lot of people is that they don't understand the connection between collateral and its reuse and actual funding in the real economy. In other words, Draw that connection for us. Why is collateral and rehypothecation in these specific markets that you just described, why does it matter for actual economic growth? Okay, very good question. And although I've written about it, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I, I put the best stuff in the footnotes. Okay, uh, so the real economy. So let me give you two examples. One is the hedge funds, okay? If hedge funds, uh, let's say the hedge funds who have portfolio of securities, if they can pass it on to a large bank in lieu of that, get funding, which allows them to bid for, say, an IBM bond or, say, a corporate bond or a Caterpillar bond. So if you have more bids from hedge funds because they have the monies now, because they could rehypothecate their portfolio securities, that allows more, more bidders towards uh, bond issuance from the real economy. Now, if you have 100 bidders than, say, 20 bidders, obviously the coupon, which may actually be... Uh, uh, I mean, this bonds coupon may be lower because you have a high bid-to-cover ratio. So when you have more demand of funding coming, that can lower the cost of corporates, etc., from the real economy. The other example of the real economy is if you look at pension funds and insurers 
who are the other suppliers of collateral, they augment their returns. So, for example, if they have a security like a U.S. Treasury bond yielding 4% for 30 years, they can either lock it up and get 4% every year, or they can, when there is an opportunity, let it out in the market, rent it out, and make 20 bips for, two, say, two months, make, make say, 30 bips here or there. And that can overall, the total return to that pension or insurers for that year could be 5%, 5.5%. So what I'm saying is these pension insurers are actually manifestations of the, fiduciary, the fiduciaries for the real economy, people like you and me. So, yes, it does help. I mean, if collateral moves and returns to fiduciaries of, the, of, of households, get extra returns, or you get corporates issuing at a lower coupon because there's more bids, because there are more people who can fund themselves now, I think it is a net-net, a plus for real economy. Yeah, okay? I, I, and also I think that kind of complements your point that it's not necessarily a shortage of collateral. It's the movement of the collateral that matters. So the solution is not, like you said, creating more collateral per se, it's just encouraging more people to feel confident enough to lend it. Is that right? Yes, I would say that, you know, I mean, even uh, we at the IMF had done a report last year, GFS, a Global Financial Stability Report, where we show that, you know, you have AAA, AA assets uh, as, as large as $70 trillion. Uh, Now, if a large part of this universe does not move or has zero velocity, then there is an issue, yes. There is more demand. Clearly, we know numbers that between liquidity ratios and CCPs and the whole gamut of Basel III, you could easily find, depending on numbers, between two, three, four, five, six trillion of new collateral demands. Now, if that sizable demand is forthcoming and we don't get much supply, how do you get supply? Either you can crank up the debt to GDP of some of these OECD countries because these countries have the AAA, AA type of classification. Well, guess what? The U.S. and Western Europe countries have not much debt-to-GDP space. So only so much debt can be issued. So, so at the end of the day... On that front, I was just wondering, because one of the you know, biggest stashes of, of high-quality collateral is obviously over in Asia. Both Japan and China own a lot of securities. But we don't... I mean, do they engage in the repo market at all? And could could they be seen as coming into the market? Is there anything preventing them from, from engaging in that market? Well, the JJBs so far, empirically, the JJB market, which is good collateral, has mostly been domestic uh, market. It's, it is not used cross-border. From the collateral desk from major bank, JJP doesn't find its way like you'll find the Eurozone collateral or the U.S. Treasury collateral. With, with much of this uh, QE happening in Japan, I don't see much JJB coming into the cross-border collateral side because there's a new entrant in the market. When you, when you talk about China, you can throw in Middle East. Yes, these guys got a lot of U.S. Treasuries. But except for very few of them, let's say the Sovereign Wealth Fund of China, very few engage in SEC lending. Yes, there is potential out there for this collateral to be mobilized. There's enough good collateral, but a lot of central banks, when they absorb a treasury bond, most of the emerging market work, except for a few, lock the treasury bond for 30 years. They take the yield and that's it. Now, yes, but it's not easy to change local laws. They are also cognizant about what happens and how to make extra returns. And you're right that a lot of these countries, central banks, do not have the returns they need, or, or a lot of pension funds do not have the returns which they need because they are underfunded. But at the same time, they have seen what happened in 2008. 
that certain counterparties can disappear and that type of risk is ingrained in their mind. Being official sector, they're not tied to bonuses. So, you know, it's a mixture of local laws not being there, incentive structures not being there. So the collateral doesn't move. Before we start to wrap things up, I want to ask you a question about QE3, because there's a camp of economists, and in particular, I'm thinking about the market monetarists, that I think would, in the, on the one hand, agree with you that quantitative easing removes good collateral from the markets. But on the other hand, they would say that it's part of a central banking program that's also meant to enhance the availability and the strength of other assets in the markets that themselves might serve as as decent collateral. So you're removing government bonds from the market, but you might be pushing up the quality of other kinds of debt. I don't know, junk bonds, corporate bonds, because you're committing to a program of targeting either either nominal income or just because you're you're committed to a program of, you know, higher inflation expectations and lower unemployment. So it sounds to me like one of the assumptions in your work is that that kind of collateral wouldn't be good enough, despite what the central bank is doing. It has to be either government debt or government-backed debt of some kind. Is that a fair assessment, or more generally, what would be your response to those economists? No, I think it's a fair assessment, although I would like to qualify it by saying that, although they, I mean, with all due respect, they have their objectives, the unemployment numbers, the inflation numbers, so from a very broad picture macroeconomy, they are doing what they have to do. And as a flip side, they are pushing or, you know, the, the investors have been pushed to take returns in the riskier side, corporate debt, emerging markets, etc. However, that that is a very different type of collateral set required for regulations. If you see the demands of regulations, they have not bent so much. The CCP still want very good collateral. On the other hand, you will also find uh, very little dilution. So the liquidity coverage ratio diluted that up to 15% could be sub double A debt. But the point I'm trying to make here is, uh, again, coming back to central banking, is when they absorb collateral, let's take the example of Fed, when you absorb 85 billion a month, it will not be easy to say, okay, you know what, our numbers are good, our, our, our economy is good, that we can, that we will release 85 billion a month. Why? And this is a very important point, that there will be a symmetry in the release of good collateral. They will not be able to release good collateral the way they absorb it, because you know, when you are off the zero lower bound and your policy rates are moving from 25 to 50 to 75, and you have a timetable which is based on Taylor rule, input-output gap, your macro models, etc. If you have that time of timetable and you're a central bank, then for you, that matters that your policy rate, that you get back your credible policy rate, that you're away from the zero lower bound. Now, you cannot just say, okay, you know what, now we will let go 85 billion of securities. Why? Because when you let go collateral, collateral also has velocity. Okay, that collateral will will jumpstart the repo rate. Most of the repo rates, in at least in the U.S., is in single digits, and most of the good collateral repo rate is in negative territory. But again, let's take the example of the U.S. If you release collateral, large amount, that collateral rate can be higher than the policy rate. Now, clearly, if you're a central bank, policy rate is very important, and you want a credible policy rate. However, now the policy rate is now has an ammunition of almost two trillion of, 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 of say excess reserves. When banks are holding two trillion of excess reserves for whatever reasons, okay, and your policy rate goes to fifty or seventy-five, the opportunity cost is higher now and they will keep holding it. But if you release collateral, 
a lot of people go back to the June 2011 FOMC where there was discussion that, you know, certain securities will be sold. Well, it's very different now. If you see the recent speech by Mr. Dudley of New York Fed, that may not be the case because in my view, again, my view, not IMS view, but when you release collateral, the GC rate goes up and the GC rate cannot go higher than the policy rate. Why? Because the policy rate, which is now holding 2,000 of cash, I mean, literally cash, because this money can move out, that $2 trillion will look for will, will look for investment in the repo rate if it's, if it's a 10, 20 bits higher than the policy rate. So as a central bank, you would be rather conservative and get your policy rate straight than the policy rate chasing a repo rate. Policy rates come from macroeconomy, um, uh, you know, unemployment numbers, inflation numbers, et cetera, et cetera. They should not come from repo rates. So the release of collateral cannot, will most likely not be symmetric simply because the collateral release rate can go out of control. I mean, that's a market rate. So, it so is basically the market rate would be um, determined by the repo. And if you allow the repo rate to basically run loose, you undermine your own policy to a certain extent because it becomes very difficult to compete with a private market that is quoting a completely different rate. Exactly, Isabel. Exactly. And, and if the repo rate is, say, 105 bips and your policy rate is, say, 75 bips, you have $2 trillion now as excess reserve which can be unleashed, that can lead to inflationary dynamics. So, so what I'm saying is, as much as people talk about, you know, good collateral siloed, the release of collateral will have a very different timetable. That's why people talk about collateral transformation, etc., simply because many feel that good collateral is not forthcoming. Once it's gone, it will have a very different timetable, which will be a function of many things. Clearly, it cannot go north of the policy rate. So how do we square the circle? Well, then you go to the dealers, you pledge triple B, you get out the, and, and then you might get a double A, you, and you pay a cut, and then you, and then you go to a CCP, and you post your double A. That's the likely scenario. And, and you think this process is going to be exacerbated by regulations that are coming online actually pretty soon in the U.S., and I, and I believe uh, already have, so, have done so uh, elsewhere. Well, the demand supply, the demand and supply can meet, assuming you cannot supply uh, more debt, because many of the countries have reached debt-to-GDP constraints, then one way demand-supply gap can be met is through higher collateral velocity. So you go back to the dealers that, you know, if you find natural holders of good collateral pension insurers, find a market where they can augment returns. So pension insurers can let go the AAA, AA, which can go through a large bank like Goldman Barclays and be, and be used by somebody else who needs to post a CCP. It's healthy. The only thing is it should not be reminiscent of what happened in the mid-2000s when a lot of C became AAA and there was not much to cash that type of thinking. I think the Basel III's leverage ratio is going to pick up a lot of off-balance sheet items. I haven't seen the final draft. I don't know the details of it. But here's the debate. The, the leverage ratio will have bite. At the same time, it should not suffocate the balance sheets so that the balance sheets can have some collateral transformation, which is healthy. I mean, if, if a siloed pension fund AAA can be mobilized so some corporate can use it to post to a CCP and, and the bank makes a cut, that's fine. Uh, but if the leverage ratio is so onerous that 
that your balance sheet capacity is uh, become so tight that you can't execute collateral transformation, then 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 I say net net that will not be positive, and you will have a demand supply imbalance. And that could then create a funding squeeze potentially. Well, then you go back to you know the GC rates negative and this and that. Yes, Monmo, and there's a there's a group of economists. I think some of them might be collaborators of yours. Others, for all I know, might be rivals. Um, but it seems like there's only about maybe a half dozen, maybe a few more, uh, who are doing this kind of work that I think could reasonably be described as new and cutting edge, this focus on collateral and reuse and how it has kind of upended um, the sort of Econ 101 understanding of money multiplier effects. Do you want to just talk about how confident you are that this work will be incorporated into mainstream economic thinking in the future? I mean, are, are you making headway? Since you mentioned half a dozen, I don't want to single out anyone. But yes, I think when we learned money, we learned things like IS and LM. And I mean, I can explain that. But basically, we were just talked, we were talked about money. But financial lubrication in markets is money and collateral. So we were never taught that how how collateral is an integral part of global financial markets. And I hope, I hope that some of this thinking is factored in when decisions are based purely on money aggregates like M1, M2. I still haven't seen M3 numbers from the Fed officially. You know, they used to be published, but you can find anecdotes of that. It's a St. Louis Fred, F-R-E-D, and some other private vendors. But I think a large part of this world which may not be official statistics, is very important. I think lubrication and, and the signals you get from the repo markets are important. I've seen a recent paper, which is a draft paper, also from ECB, showing the importance of repo markets in monetary policy. So yes, I think collateral is, I mean, does shape monetary policy and vice versa. And, I'm, and, and I hope that this crisis and the fact that they went into uncharted territory has forced them to realize that, you know, there is this integral part. So sometimes things happen for a reason. This financial crisis, the QE, which was never taught, you, I, and I was never taught things like uh, quantitative easing uh, in my undergrad or grad school, but having gone there, you are forced to rethink some, uh, some issues you're ignoring. So the financial plumbing, I think, is getting more acceptance. It's not modeled yet. You know, most of the economic academics uh, thinking likes to model things. But I'm sure one of these days somebody will get a handle uh, on how to model it. But clearly, if you, if you talk to some of the senior folks who have either read my work or the work of some of my, uh, my co-authors or some other colleagues, they are understanding that, that you cannot ignore collateral, that financial lubrication and plumbing matters, and you just can't look at the money side of things alone. I hope there'll be more followers. I hope uh, they can improve on this. But, uh, you know, the collateral world, A, you need to understand how markets work and, and the data is not there. But when you come up with large numbers like 10 trillion, then you can't just ignore that, you know. Well, I think okay. a, a good um, example of why that is the case is the fact that central banks, you know, have always used to some degree the collateral markets. Like they will dictate rates and hope that the dictation of those rates will be enough to influence the markets. But at the end of the day, they they do their open market operations focus on repo, don't they? Yes, I mean, when you go back, uh, when you go back to pre-Lehman days, if you look at the Fed, 
you know, uh, the amount of reserves or excess reserves rather was between 25 and 50 billion for the last 50, 60 years. You know, so basically nobody kept excess reserves. Now you find a world of almost two trillion of excess reserves, and that has a different geometry to itself. You know, things like uh, 25 bips payment to only a certain part of financial sector, non-banks not getting it, what this means for the Fed funds rate, what all this means for policy rate going upwards. Now you also know that the reverse repos which they have in mind will include some non-banks and money market funds, etc., etc. So, you know, everybody is learning by doing. There have been segmentations. You need to unify them. But I think a lot of old orthodox thinking, I'm not saying it was wrong. I think we have just come into a new phase where you need to look for other tools. And there may be other tools which will sort of now be incorporated, which were never really looked at in detail because we, we never went into this uncharted, uh, uncharted terrain where you were sitting in, uh, where you were sitting at zero rates for so long. Yeah, okay. I, I agree. Cardiff, do you, do you have any other insights to add? No, I, I think we're, we're already at 1140, so uh, we've already taken up more time. Uh, I, I could talk about this endlessly. Can we ask for it? And, yeah, and I mean, on the blog, we, we certainly have, and I, I don't think we've, we've seen the last of it. So, Manmon, thanks so much for your time. Uh, welcome, welcome. We appreciate yes, thanks it. Very and much. Izzy, thanks, uh, thanks for tuning in. And, no problem. Uh, all right. We'll see okay. everybody next time. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.